0: Hello, I'm Alexandra Shulman, and I'm here to talk about my new book, Clothes and Other Things That Matter. First, I should explain that unlike many other podcasts i am done, I'm sitting here on my own in my living room, rather than chatting with someone else, which means that there's no one to keep me in order if they feel I'm banging on a bit. So forgive me if you feel that way. Clothes and Other Things That Matter is a bit of a hybrid of a book. It's part memoir, part social observation, part fashion history and a soupçon of other bits and pieces. I'd like to think it's quite a good book for this kind of lockdown moment because it's a series of very short chapters and if you're anything like me, your concentration at the moment isn't completely brilliant. It came about when I left my job as editor of Vogue, which I'd had for 25 years. I left in 2017 to fling myself into the unknown and to see what happened. And one of the things that happened was this book. Of course, it didn't just happen. It had various starts that didn't work out, and I fumbled my way into what it has turned out to be. Originally, I'd planned to write a book about the process of leaving an established role where you have been for many years. But as it turned out, and as the weeks went by, I lost interest in that. So one day, I was beginning to sort out my clothes as a kind of diversion therapy. And instead of doing the tidying out, I decided to count what was in there, what I had, just to see I was surprised by how many things I had, and I made a list, which is what I've published as the start of the book. And here are a few of the items. 22 coats, 35 dresses, 34 jackets, 7 not immediately categorizable tops, 1 pair of shorts, 24 pairs of tights, 4 dressing gowns, 21 pairs of socks, 35 bras, 6 pairs of slippers, 37 handbags. While I was counting them, I began to consider what the various pieces had meant to me. Which ones had meant anything at all? Which ones nothing? Which had been there for years simply because I'm attached to them and like to look at them? which kind of items were bought on repeat and why I did that. And that became the root of the book, which, as it says in the title, is about clothes, but about so many other things. The pieces I write about have been chosen because they have at some time or other meant something to me. A few are utterly idiosyncratic, others part of many women's collections. Ultimately though, this book is entirely personal. How much can be traced through the contents of our wardrobes? In my case, 556 pieces. These clothes are the story of my life and my preoccupations. Like everyone's, they're unique. The book starts with red shoes. In my case, those start sandals, which many of us children of the early 60s wore, and it finishes up with jewellery. On the way, I look at various items like aprons, t-shirts, trainers, slip dresses, the tracksuit and dig around in them to see what they say about aspects of our lives like love and ambition, sexuality and parenthood. During this podcast, I'd like to share a few of these items and my thoughts about them. I'll go to this here party. Nah, just get bored and I look at the wind to see us with young fun hoping on the parker middle, leaning on the parker middle Oh, she looks so good Oh, she looks so fine And I've got this crazy feeling And then I'm gonna, make up my White shirts was one of the earliest chapters I wrote. Everybody has white shirts in their wardrobe, I thought. It'll be something that resonates with a lot of people. But then I realised that actually I didn't. But then I did at various other points in my life. And here's a little description of my first white shirt. The Robert Mapplethorpe cover image of Patti Smith's first album, Horses, was seminal to my teens. There she stood, the ultimate in androgynousness, and suciance, blowing away in one shot, the flowing, long-haired hippie ideal of femininity. She wears a white shirt, unbuttoned only at the neck, the cuffs rolled up, tucked into black trousers. A black jacket hangs over her shoulder and her trousers are so loose on her frame that they're held up with a pair of black braces. She stares at us defiantly, challenging us to accept this pre-punk, urban style. That autumn I was 18 and I saw her perform horses at Hammersmith Odeon. After the show I took the underground home and decided that the only thing I ever really wanted to wear from that point forward was a loose white shirt. No matter that Patty Smith's white shirt hung from the skinniest torso, which was not the case of my own. No matter that her scratchy black bob, white skin and Modigliani neck lent her a patrician hauteur, far from my round face and long hair. She was the person I wanted to look like. In fact, the person I wanted to be a New York street urchin of indeterminate sexuality rather than a London private school girl trapped in an A-level curriculum. So that was my first relationship with a white shirt, an item which is a staple of a professional wardrobe and so far away from what that original white shirt I so loved represented. White shirts are the kind of thing that women often wear in PR headshots when they want to appear calm, efficient, organised and not too showy. White shirts are often worn, oddly enough, by female fashion designers when they appear at the end of the catwalk after their show, in order to show that they are the worker bee in the show, and they're not part of the fashion parade that's just gone on. And on many, many fashion shoots that I attended, I noticed that fashion editors, when they're shooting either fashion or celebrities, often wore white shirts on the shoot as a kind of plain, simple uniform, so that they didn't in any way detract from what was being photographed. It's something that you wear when you don't want to appear too ostentatious. White shirts, I figure, are both dressed down and dress up. I spent a summer wearing one in creamy linen fitted close to the body with a lace collar. I almost always wore it with a black cotton skirt stitched in panels which flared to below the calf and a black leather belt with a silver buckle. Undoubtedly, I had the famous Alfred Stieglitz images of his wife Georgia O'Keeffe in mind as an inspiration. That was an unusually hot summer and the sounds of reggae would drift all night through the windows of the flat in Labrook Grove in West London where I rented a room from a friend and I was very much in love of the anguished kind. Now I don't ever wear them, probably because I realise and sadly accept that I never will live the life of the charismatic troubadour like Patti Smith or beautiful desert artist like Georgia O'Keefe. the people who I just might have thought I could be when in those earlier times I put on a white shirt. And Mama hollered at the back door Y'all remember to wipe your feet And then she said I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge, today Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. I'm not sure that large baggy sweaters are really called sloppy jays now, but that's what they used to be called when I was a teenager or in my 20s, and it's how I think of them, so it's how I've written about them. Whatever they're called, We all know that wearing something swamping and oversized is a kind of comfort blanket and also an escape. I've always thought that big baggy jumpers are clothes to hunker down in. No doubt rather a lot of them are being worn during this period of the coronavirus. In some ways they make you feel safe but in some ways they're also clothes to escape in. When I was writing the book, I thought quite a lot about Sloppy Joes, mainly because I was wearing one rather a lot of the time that I wrote it. Sloppy Joes aren't the kind of thing you wear to go out and get things done. No, they're the kind of thing you wear to avoid getting on with life and instead spend time, as an example, in a Spotify labyrinth, starting with Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry, that can lead you on to music by Lucinda Williams, Jean Clark, and Mercury Rev. As it happens, my favourite version of that gentry song is by Sinead O'Connor, who nails her colours to the mast on the pressing question of what it really was that the narrator and Billy Joe threw off the Tallahatchie Bridge. In that recording, you hear the brief small cry of a baby. This is the kind of music that you listen to and the things you think about when you wear these sweaters. I doubt that anybody wears a Sloppy Joe to listen to the high-voltage music of Cardi B, Calvin Harris, or Dua Lipa. And in the unlikely event they might, they certainly nowadays wouldn't call it by that name. In Clothes and Other Things That Matter, I tell the story of wearing one of my favourite Sloppy Joes, which was a big cream Aran sweater that came from a shop called Lawrence Corner, which was on the corner of the Euston Road and it was an army surplus shop where you could buy not only Aran sweaters but sailors trousers and great coats and khaki jackets and all the kind of army surplus things that people have worn for years really. I took that cream Aran sweater which was a sort of old Guernsey I think along on the first trip that I went to with a friend, which we were allowed to go on without parents. It was with my friend Caroline, and we went to Paris. It was meant to be just a teenage couple of days, just her and me, going around the place, buying cheap food, staying in an incredibly cheap kind of hotel of the kind that I wouldn't particularly want to stay in nowadays. But it did have an odd twist. The previous week before we went in London, Caroline, and it was she, not us, because believe me, she was nymph-style gorgeous, had been picked up when we were hanging around on the King's Road by some much older guy who had said, over the cup of tea he bought us, that funnily enough, he and his friend Alan were going to be in Paris that weekend as well. Why didn't they take us out? And we had said, sure. John, as we learned was his name, telephoned me the evening before we left to say that he and this friend would be taking us to a restaurant called the Tour d'Argent. And since it was smart, we should take something smart to wear, not jeans. I took the call standing in the hall at home where the telephone was. And I remember telling my parents about his message and them saying that, Yes, it was a very smart restaurant. It was famous for its phrase de bois. They did not say, why on earth is some wealthy guy you haven't even met taking you 217 17 17-year-olds out to a wildly expensive restaurant in Paris? Anyway, we went, and uh, the story of what happened is uh, too long for this podcast, but it's in the book. Uh, but it did make me realise that When the chips are down and when you don't feel safe, sloppy joes are the kind of thing that you really want to be wearing. It's an item of clothing that has nothing sexy or sexual about it. Now Suzanne takes your hand and she leads you to the river She is wearing rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters and the sun pours down like honey on our lady of the harbour and she shows you where to look Suzanne by Leonard Cohen was one of my favourite songs as a teenager. Now there are many others of his that I prefer more but then it was Suzanne who dressed in rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters that resonated with me and this was the reason The house near Paddington station belonged to a diplomat, who was usually posted abroad, while his children went to schools in London, and it was there in the small low-ceilinged sitting room on a Saturday afternoon in 1973 that I first heard Leonard Cohen's "Suzanne." That afternoon, I recall it being late spring, but then again it could have been early autumn, we were at a tea party. Lucy, the diplomat's daughter, was three years above me at school and she held weekly tea parties. They seemed, at the time, ineffably glamorous. It was one of the places that we all wanted to hang out. For a start, there were always boys there. And since I was at a single-sex school, boys were not that easily come by. The boys who came for tea were all in love with Lucy. Not because she was particularly beautiful, but because she was like Suzanne. Wearing long skirts and silky scarves, she dished out advice and opinion in a sage, quasi-maternal style. I was 16 and Suzanne and for a few months Lucy were my heroines. Who wouldn't want to look like Suzanne to live like Suzanne by the river? You know as Cohen sings that she is unique and wild and forging her own compelling path. And I knew, and if you're 16, this counts for a great deal, that she was one of my kind because of the way she dressed. A few years ago, I was asked to write an essay for BBC Radio 3 about a piece of clothing in a piece of art. And I chose to write about these rags and feathers. And in this book, I'm writing about them again. Suzanne is now identified as Suzanne Verdal, a beautiful girl who hung out with the jazz musicians on the banks of the St. Lawrence River of Montreal. And she dressed herself and her daughter in clothes that she bought from charity shops. Those clothes, the second-hand style that many of us loved back in the 70s, has now come back into fashion again, with a new emphasis on recycling and sustainability. Personally, I don't take much to the phrase pre-loved to describe second-hand anything, but it is fascinating to see how attitudes to second-hand clothing have changed. Now, of course, everybody looks at hand-me-downs in a completely different way. Second-hand is vintage, Second-hand is recycling. Second-hand is good. But while writing this chapter, I realised, of course, that the appreciation of second-hand has very little currency in societies or among groups where people are routinely deprived of anything new. Then, second-hand is just the normal third-hand, fourth-hand even. It's new that you really want. It's been the privilege of Western cultures, who have enjoyed relative peace and stability for several decades to indulge in the luxury of admiring used clothes. While I was at Vogue, white shoes became something of a trademark. I had a particular style that I loved, which was sort of white court shoes with a really beautiful curved heel that Manolo Blahnik made me in a perfect heel height, which was for me 90 millimetres, which is neither low nor high. It was just very comfortable and very beautiful. I've loved white shoes always for their impracticality. They tread a very fine line between privilege and trashiness. I'm not sure at all why, but it's always the white shoes in any shop window that lure me in. Now, one of my favourite singers has been for years, Emmy Lou Harris, and years back I discovered her singing a song called White Shoes. I didn't know at that time that I was going to become. A white shoe aficionado. I didn't know at that time that I was going to ever edit Vogue but I loved that song. So of course when I was writing a book about clothes and other things that matter I had to write about white shoes and I wanted to quote that song. As with all lyrics I had to clear the copyright and I discovered that White Shoes wasn't in fact written by Lou Harris but by Jack Tampkin, a man who had also written another of my favourites, Peaceful Easy Feeling, recorded by the Eagles, with these lines you probably recognise. I love the way her sparkling earring lay against her skin so brown, and I'd like to sleep with you in the desert tonight with a million stars all around. And then it goes on saying, i got a peaceful easy feeling. I'm digressing, I know. That has nothing to do with White Shoes. The music publishers wanted a lot of money for me to be able to use a couple of lines from White Shoes. And I was about to drop the idea. But the next morning I opened my computer and in my inbox was an email in the subject matter from Jack Tempkin, the writer of White Shoes. Jack Temkin had seen what I wanted to use these few lines for and had said that he wanted to go ahead. He liked the idea of his song being in my book and I could use it for a much more reasonable, smaller sum. It turned out that he'd grown up in California and on a very, one of his first trips to Europe, he was visiting a musician friend in Amsterdam. He went to France and saw a concert there where the bass player was wearing white shoes and he, like I, was struck by the white shoes. He wrote to me, who wore white shoes back in California at that time? Nobody ever. I had never seen a pair of white shoes on a man unless they were tennis shoes. I decided I had to have a pair and I bought some leather white shoes in Amsterdam. It's one of the great pleasures of this book that I've had this pen pal correspondence with a songwriter who I recognised from many of my famous vinyl album covers when I was, was growing up. And I love the idea that he shares the allure of white shoes. Yeah. When I was editing Vogue, there were a number of occasions when I would be hosting a big gala, usually a fundraising event of some kind or other. And then, of course, I needed to be very dressed up. Dressing up in this kind of formal way wasn't ever something that came naturally to me. I love clothes, and I like to think I care about what I'm wearing. But it's always daunting, those events like weddings or bar mitzvahs or any kind of big celebrations, galas, when you know you have to look particularly smart or glamorous, when you know really you have to look special. I call those outfits the big ticket dress. Dresses for the occasion when you really have to raise the bar and this was the first one that I remember as a young girl. My first such event was a party held in a beautiful ballroom One of the few remaining of a private house in Chelsea given by two boys who were the sons of friends of my parents. They were 18 and 16 and I was 13 and utterly terrified. Up until then parties had only involved a group of girls from my class at school going to the cinema for a film and then maybe to somewhere to have a hamburger. This party was obviously something of a quite different order. The dress I found for the evening was from Forbidden Fruit, a shop on a corner of the King's Road with piles of mirrored dresses and waistcoats and shawls from Afghanistan and India. It was midi-length in a very pale pink silky material with a grey forget-me-not print, long sleeves and a neckline that laced up. When I showed it off at home, to my complete chagrin, my mother insisted that a modest piece of fabric be inserted between the laces and my skin, removing the one element of daring in this softly romantic dress. The party was filled with public schoolboys from Eton and Harrow in black tie, with their white shirts and teeth glowing in the ultraviolet lighting that also dramatically improved everyone's dodgy complexions. The air was thick with eau sauvage aftershave. That winter's hit, Lady Barbara, by Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits, played again and again, a rather soppy song, which with the benefit of hindsight had absolutely nothing to recommend it. But I danced with a cabinet minister's son who held me clamorly against him and somebody who I didn't know kissed me during a slow dance. My father picked me up at midnight and my world had changed. Ahead of me was a lifetime of parties where I might meet somebody who might kiss me during a slow dance. And I was wearing a pink dress, which I never wore again. There was never another occasion that could live up to the memory of that one. So my sister and my mother and I have always had a bit of a shared joke about the Nancy Mitford line in her book The Blessing, when Nanny tells the central character, Grace, who is getting dressed for her wedding, Don't worry, dear, nobody's going to look at you. The last big ticket dress of my Vogue career was a night when I knew that people would most certainly be looking at me. 2016 was the magazine's centenary year. I was responsible, as editor, for making it a big production. As part of what we'd organised, we had our annual Vogue festival, which was a kind of super-duper souped-up event. And on the last night, a gala dinner was held with many of the speakers that we'd had at the festival. It was a truly amazing night, held in an enormous marquee opposite the Albert Hall in Hyde Park. There was Giorgio Armani, who I introduced to the new mayor, Sadiq Khan, and I remember Sadiq telling Armani how proud he had been of his first Armani tie. There was Kim Kardashian in a lacy see-through dress, arriving with Kanye West. There was Damien Lewis and Helen McCrory. There was Mutra Prada, and so on. There were so many names from the fashion world, from the British art world, people that I'd worked with, people who'd all been part of the Vogue that I had been responsible for, for 25 years. So obviously, I had to pull out the stops. I had to wear a big ticket dress. And that dress was a sequined shift made for me by the designer, Erdem Moriaglu. The original was on his catwalk in the previous spring, an undulating gunmetal gray, long sleeved high neck dress that glimmered like Victorian silver traced with a pattern of black embroidery. Erdem and I took the ingredients and mushed them around to make the dress I wanted. Starting with a scrap of fabric and his deft sketch that showed it on a woman most unlike me, with a small head and boyish crop, long earrings and a slender body. Like all couture dresses, rather than appearing fully formed, it grew over three months, changing colours, lengths and shapes each time we met in the sea-blue changing room of his Mayfair store. When the dress arrives, a few nights before the party, in its white cotton garment bag with the chic black lettering E-R-D-E-M. I rush into the loos at the office to slip into it. If something looked good in the hideous lighting of the Vogue loos, then I knew it would look good anywhere on earth. So as I stare at myself in the mirrored wall opposite the basins, I'm hugely relieved, knowing that if nothing else goes well that night, my dress will stand the ultimate big ticket test. It's a dress for a person at the centre and not an outlier. When I wear it, it will be in the full knowledge that this will be an occasion when what I wear should and does really matter. And that, yes, somebody, quite probably everybody, will most definitely be looking at me. And that seems to be uh, a nice high point on which to, to stop talking about the book and I've been asked by Sandoz to answer a few questions. One of the first ones I thought would be nice to talk about is a question about which goes whilst working in fashion did you ever experience snootiness or being taken less seriously because of the perception that fashion is only frivolous? It's a very interesting question this because fashion does suffer um, a certain amount from being thought frivolous And I've often thought about why that might be, because when you actually think about what fashion design brings to our culture, um, it's so incredibly relevant and important. And the very, very most influential, really, and um, beautiful fashion uh, designers, let's say, like um, Chanel or or Dior, or, or now um, Alexander McQueen, uh, perhaps uh, Mucha Prada. Um, their, their work is as creative as many other um, art forms. But I think one of the interesting things about fashion is that it, it only really exists as a kind of mixture of art, art and business. Um, so it's never taken quite as seriously as something, say, like, like literature or theatre. Um, of course, there is a difference between fashion, which is something I think that demands kind of creativity and newness and experimentation, and clothes, which are what we wear. And um, I actually, I'm really interested in clothes almost more than I am in fashion. Um, But in terms of being taken seriously during the time I was at Vogue, there was a huge difference uh, in the way that that fashion's regarded in the world. And it became so much more part of the conversation and of the general culture. When I joined in 1992, there were really very few designers that people knew the names of. By the time I left, designers had become celebrities in their own right. Um, fashion had become entertainment, really. And so I think that that kind of prejudice and snootiness was, was being eroded happily. Another question is, uh, who's your favorite magazine editor working now? Which is, again, an interesting one. Um, I love magazines, I, I still buy them. I'm a huge fan of the actual physical print magazines. I have huge admiration for um, David Remnick, who's the New Yorker editor, which is a bit of a cheat because obviously it's a magazine of, of words rather than of sort of more of a glossy magazine. But the standard of, of journalism and the, the mix that he puts in um, weekly is, is something that I, I wildly admire. Um, I love both um, House and Garden and Interiors. Um, World of Interiors is edited by Rupert Thomas and he's got such a fantastic sort of maverick sense of style which has always been a part of the appeal of Interiors. Um, and Hatterbing at House and Garden has managed I think to, to take a magazine which is so kind of useful really in terms of inspiring one to do up your house and find out ways to, ways to do it. Hatterbyn hasn't been there for that long but she's added her own qualities I'm particularly injecting more people into it which is something that I very much like. Another question is, do you enjoy choosing what to wear every day? Is it sometimes a relief now you are no longer at the eye of the fashion storm? Well, when I was at Vogue, um, I probably enjoyed choosing what to wear rather less than I do now. Um, Possibly not exactly now, because when you're locked down, as we all are, Uh, one's attitude to clothes is slightly different to the way it might be. But even so, it requires choosing what to wear or or what not to wear. I think not going into an office and sort of taking on a, a professional role does free one up to dress however you want. And that's something rather wonderful. So I like the idea that if I want, I can wear a rather kind of ritzy and glamorous skirt just around the house, or otherwise I can slop around in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt if I so wish. And it's all really to do with, with what I so wish. I am very aware of the, uh, the messages that clothes give out. And if I've got a very busy day with a number of different meetings or different events spread throughout it, I will now quite often change several times. Um, come back home and change because I think the person that I feel comfortable being in one kind of meeting won't necessarily be the person I want to be later on that evening going out um, say for a drinks party or the kind of person that I might want to be in a different kind of meeting so uh, it's been interesting to see for me how different ones life can be with clothes, really. And I think the last question, is the key to wearing anything to wear it with confidence? That question really begs whether there is a key to wearing clothes, and given that we all wear clothes, there isn't really any kind of secret to it. I think that you feel better, obviously, if you feel comfortable in your clothes, and feel more confident in your clothes. But some people simply don't don't really want to try and experiment with their clothes. And and confidence is gained from having a kind of template and sticking to it. So I'm not sure that there, there is a key to wearing anything well, because sometimes people are able to be mavericks and to play around with their clothes and mix things up and that works very well for them and they feel happy and they look wonderful. And some people feel happy and look equally good in something more kind of restrained and sober. So I don't think there are rules. And I think the great thing about clothes is that you shouldn't feel hidebound about them. You should just, I hope, enjoy them because clothes are, are wonderful and pleasurable and... And I think they do matter. Alexandra Shulman's book, Clothes and Other Things That Matter, came out on the 23rd of April. You can still order from Sandoz online, over the phone or by email. Thank you for listening.